it struck me this morning as I was singing these songs about things that will last forever and things that will matter forever. It struck me how we gather like this to get in touch and remind ourselves of ultimate reality. Uh, we've been living our lives this week. Some of you have had a great week. Some of you have had a terrible week. Um, you could have a great week, and guess what? It's not going to last. You had a terrible week, and it's not going to last. None of it's going to last. We think we've been in touch with reality all week. Uh, we come here to escape reality. Um, ultimate reality will last forever. Uh, and so it's just, I'm just my own personal testimony. I'm just so thankful to hear you all singing about ultimate reality because um, it's a great ministry to me. Um, it's just helpful to bring things back into perspective. Um, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the firstborn among many. So if you're trusting in Christ, you will have a new body. You will have a new life. It will last forever. It really helps put our good weeks and our bad weeks in perspective. Uh, and to be quite honest, it's why we need church worship services and we come together to get back in touch with ultimate reality. Amen? That was an awesome sermon, wasn't it? All right, let's go to lunch. So, <laughs> I want to reread that statement to begin with, all joking aside, um, from our psalm that we read earlier this morning, Psalm 46. You don't need to turn there, but there's that profound statement that we all love where God says, Be still and know that I am God. Some of your translations might say, Cease striving and know that I am God. We might say, rest and know that I am God. Stop worrying and fretting and know that I am God. That statement alone, whether we realize it or not, says theology matters. That psalm tells us theology matters. Theology is, the, is our understanding of God, the study of God and His ways. To say, stop worrying, stop striving, stop fretting, and know that I am God. Well, what do we know about you as God? Well, we would even learn from the psalm that you are powerful. That's theology. That you're most powerful. That's theology. That you're, you're the living God, that you're different from all the other self-made gods. That's theology. That you make promises and you have the power and faithfulness, the integrity to keep your promises. That's theology. Theology matters. And so we're talking about that in this mini-series. It's a little bit disjointed because you've been gone and I've been gone, but we're, we're, we're hammering away at why theology matters. And uh, I think we'll probably, my guess is, be at it one more week, and then we'll return to our study of the life and ministry of Jesus and the gospel according to Luke. So we're going to get back there real soon, either next week or the next week. We're looking at a top ten list that just grew to at least eleven. And so, but we'll be done either this morning or next week, probably next week. Why theology matters. Why does it matter? Oh, and by the way, when we get to our study of Luke again, the study of Jesus and Luke, even though we won't be saying it week in and week out, well, if you listen, you can hear, theology matters. Theology matters. It's not irrelevant. We're talking about God in His ways as He relates to us. And we see it on every page of Scripture. 
We're just drawing deliberate attention to it in this series. We've seen that theology matters, number one, because everyone is a theologian. Everyone is a theologian. Anyone who has an opinion about God, and everyone has an opinion about God, whether they're an atheist or a televangelist, everybody has an opinion about God. And so everyone is a theologian in that sense. So it's relevant to all of us. Number two, we saw that worship is informed and fostered by theology. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. How you view God will lead you to respond to Him in a certain way or not. Worship is informed and fostered by theology. Number three, idolatry is for real. Idolatry is for real. Romans chapter 1, it's throughout the Old and New Testament. God doesn't want us to, to be creative um, in our understanding of who he is. He wants us to take it on his revelation. And when we're creative, it's called idolatry, which is a sin. He is uh, a God of revelation. We should understand him and agree with who he has said he is. Number four, we've already seen that it is a moral issue. Theology is a moral issue. Your understanding of God is a moral issue. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you believe, you have a certain theological understanding about Jesus, you will die in your sins. John chapter 8, that makes it a moral issue. What you believe really does matter. Number five, maturity and stability require it. Maturity and stability require it. We could say it another way, discernment requires it. How can you know what's right and what's wrong? How can you know what honors God and what dishonors God? How, how can you uh, determine those kinds of things? What's good, what's not good, honorable, dishonorable? Well, theology, um, your understanding of God helps you to do that. Number six, and apart from that, we wouldn't be able to. Number six, our behavior is affected by our theology. If I don't believe in God, I can act however I want. I'm my own God. If I have a certain view of God, Santa Claus view of God, I'm going to act a certain way. Senile grandparent view of God, I'm going to act a certain way. Mean-spirited, grumpy kind of God, I'll have a certain behavior. If we know God is gracious, kind, and merciful, and He sent His own unique Son, and then He said to, to, to rescue us from our predicament, to do for us what we didn't do ourselves, and then He tells us to act a certain way, love one another like I've loved you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, our theology of how Christ has loved the church leads us to, to understand that a certain way. Number seven, the, uh, methodology stems from it. Methodology, how we conduct ourselves as a church, is really based upon how we view God and His ways. And now we come to a new one. Theology matters. Understanding of God matters. Because true theology, at least, is objective. It's objective. What is objective? Objective is something that's true outside of me. Okay, so objective and subjective. Subjective is good. It has to do with experience. And we should have an experience with God. And, and so there's a subjective element absolutely. And theology has a subjective response element too. But theology matters because it is objective. And here's what I mean. And we'll see a couple of texts that will help us to see. That God is a certain way whether I feel He is that way or not. God is a certain way, whether I know it or not. The Trinity is true, 
or it isn't. That's an objective kind of statement. It's not, well, I feel that it is, and you feel that it isn't, and, and it can be both. We have all of these statements running throughout the Scripture about God and His, dare I say this word, truth. It's throughout both Testaments. And if He's real, then He is objective. And it, and it goes beyond truth is in the eye of the beholder. And it becomes very important. Super important. Now, I want to enter into this and say, because God is a God who is loyal and faithful, and, and He's loving and kind and gracious, and He's just as well, and He is holy, and He's different from us, that has a subjective impact on me. I want to respond a certain way. I need to respond a certain way. But we have to remember that theology is objective, and it makes it really important to know that and to know it from the Bible. So let's look at some passages, starting with John chapter 8. Starting with John chapter 8. And then we're going to turn to 1 John and then Jude. We're going to settle in here a little bit. Many times when we talk about or we hear people talk about um, theology not being important, it's not a big deal. It's just stuffy. It's just for the academy. It's just for theologians. It's oftentimes, uh, it, it goes hand in hand with people forget that, that God is objective. Um, and, and, and theology is objective. And, and you can know God. And, and otherwise, we just start making things up. And it doesn't really matter. And, and that's not how it comes to us in Scripture. And so I want you to see this and take this to heart. John chapter 8, verse 31. Just a single verse from John chapter 8 where it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide or continue in My word, you are truly My disciples. Then verse 32 reads, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Notice the objectivity. The truth. Not only the truth, objectivity. You will know the truth, objectivity. You might feel a certain way because of the truth. But at this point in time, you will know and you will know the truth. And ultimately, he's talking about himself. The truth about himself. He himself will say he is the truth. Ultimate reality. Because remember, we're not talking about phantom Jesus. We're not talking about Star Wars Jesus. We're talking about historical accounts of Jesus, the person they saw and touched. And he refers to himself as the truth. You want to know ultimate reality? You want to know God? God come in the flesh? You can know Him. And if you know Him, you know ultimate reality, you will be set free. You'll be set free from liars about God. You'll be set free from those enslaved to human tradition. You'll be set free from this, that, and every human philosophy that seems to come and go and change and morph. You'll be set free from your feelings that can't always be trusted. You will know the truth. You will know God. You'll be set free from theologians. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yeah, theology matters a lot. 
no longer enslaved to others, no longer enslaved to self. Now, we should acknowledge as Christians, we have to be careful. This, this doesn't mean, and it never means in Scripture for us in this broken world, it doesn't mean that we'll know the truth perfectly. It doesn't mean we'll know it exhaustively. Learning, growing, being amazed by. But Jesus says you will know the truth. Truth exists. Truth is knowable. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, why are you telling us this? It's so patently obvious. If you're thinking that, you just don't get out much. Um, so we're just doing bread and butter basics. Truth exists, according to Jesus, and it's knowable. How could it be knowable? Because if He's the truth, it's knowable. If He comes here, it's knowable. Revelation. He speaks. He's a historical figure. There are multiple eyewitnesses. Huh. Knowable. You'll know the truth. Now let's go to 1 John chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, everybody was once new to the Bible. Let me make it super easy for you. Usually we're just in one book of the Bible. Come back next week or maybe the next week. Um, but you can come back next week too. Um, but I just don't want to overwhelm you with Bible verses. It takes a while to learn 66 books. Um, but why? the reason we have Bibles is because we want to base this not on the latest and greatest philosophy, but based on what Jesus says. And so First John, almost at the very end of the Bible, First John chapter 5, same kind of theme. Chapter 5, verse 20 says, And we know, that's objectivity, we know that the Son of God has come. Objectivity, not just in imagination, not on some weird made-up planet, but planet Earth has come and has given us understanding, that fits the knowing, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, united to Him who is true, that is, in His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Notice the contrast. Little children, keep yourself from idols. True God. Others, idols, not real. True God, knowable. And He's knowable because He came here. And sometimes we Christians forget this and just how important the incarnation is. He came here. I love Jude, verse 3. It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, that would even actually support objectivity as well, though we can have a common experience. Common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, objective body of Christian truth, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith can be contended for. Once and for all delivered. So there is a Christian faith. It's not how we tend to use faith in our culture. Faith in our culture is subjective religious preference. 
or something weird like the force. The faith, once and for all, delivered. Here it is. It can be tested. It can be evaluated. It can be contrasted. It's objective. And sometimes, again, this can kind of seem harsh, strong, because objectivity can be that way. It can, it can feel that way because it just can. It's objective. But you have to remember, it's, it's what allows us to have our subjective experiences guided, led, protected. We've got to have object, objectivity. And biblical theology, genuine theology, is very objective. So I don't have to be misled and lied to and tricked and manipulated. I can go back to the truth. The faith. Once and for all delivered to the saints. It's awesome. And that does lead to a subjective kind of response for me should lead to a response of of wanting to worship God and thank Him, setting us free. But there's definite pushback. And the pushback isn't anything new. G.K. Chesterton from a couple of generations ago had an interesting um, evaluation of this in in his day and culture. But I think we we could relate to it. He writes, What we suffer from today is humility... In the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition, settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. We are on the road to producing a race of humanity too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Interesting quote. He's just making the observation that self-doubt, probably pretty healthy. Modesty about self. But he's observing it's reversed. Total self-confidence. Don't doubt myself at all. But things that are objectively, verifiably, measurably, True, doubt, don't know, can't know, nobody can know. It's like upside down. Reality of truth and knowability of truth runs, out, runs throughout Scripture. I want to look at a couple of other passages about this. Let's do that. Second Peter, toward the end of the Bible, and maybe First Timothy also. Maybe this will be the only point we do today. And then I'll have to talk super fast next week. Maybe we'll do one more. I don't want to belabor the point, but uh, yes, I do, actually. Um, <laughs> So as you're turning to Second Peter, toward the very end of the Bible, even think, and I mentioned this before, that's what I meant by not belaboring it, even listen to how people talk about objective things, and they talk about it subjectively, because it shows a kind of humility. And humility is good. 
but we're talking about things that are true and we talk about them in terms of our feelings. It's okay because that's how we talk. But there's something about it that rubs me the wrong way because it's either true or it isn't true regardless of how I feel about it. So if we're talking about something and whether or not it's true or not, don't ask me how I feel about it if you mean how I think about it. Now, I feel about it a certain way too. But we've become so polite about this that we're going to say, how do you feel about Jesus? Well, I feel that He's a great Savior and I'm thankful that He loved me and I have an emotional response. But if you mean, what do you believe about Jesus? I would rather have you say, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? And then I'd love to tell you about my feelings. But where we are as a culture is we want to say, how do you feel about Jesus? Because truth is in the eye of the beholder. Because it's not really true. Because he's your Jesus and my Jesus and your Jesus are different Jesuses, which might be true, but the reality is there's only one Jesus who's come in the flesh before eyewitnesses. That's why the Bible goes to such great lengths to talk about those things. This is why even like if you talk about, and I mentioned this before as well, talk about some old Christian uh, confessions and creeds and you talk about listening to old Christians talk and they say, um, before Pontius Pilate, delivered to Pontius Pilate. And you think, how did that guy get it, you know, his name in so many church services? Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Last time I checked, he was a bad guy. Right? And so many Christians for so many years, reciting creeds, have talked about Pontius Pilate. Somebody else pointed this out to me. I didn't come up with this. It's too profound for me to come up with it, but... It's because the Christian religion is tied to history, not fantasy. It's objective. Pontius Pilate was a real person who really existed, and Jesus stood before him. I like it that we mention his name. I like it that we do in that sense. Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to work our way through quite a few verses here, just seeing the objectivity of, of God and who He is, and we want Him to be that way, and, and the gospel, and of Jesus, and that causes us to want to respond a certain way. Therefore, uh, chapter, sorry, chapter 1, verse 12, 2 Peter 1, 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So I want you to, even though you know them and you are established in the truth that you have, it's not just pursuing the truth, which is good. That's not, the, that's not the way the Bible talks about it. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Here, you will know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am with I am in this body to stir up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon uh, as our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming notice incarnation talk 
coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Again, objectivity. Yes, it was an experience, but it's objective experience, and it's a we experience. It's not just someone who was having some kind of dream by themselves. For when He received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, eyewitnesses, objectivity, heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain again real place in the middle east and we have the prophetic word made fully confirmed to which you may do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day draws and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I want to pause just for a second. It's so interesting that Peter's saying, I experienced this and it's objective and it wasn't just me. It's verifiable, objective, true. And then he says, but Scripture's even more reliable. Interesting. Then this is why he can say what he says in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people. How can you have false prophets if you don't have objectivity of truth? You can't. Because it's how does, it, how, does it, how does Jesus feel to you? It's not it. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Once again, notice that this objective truth thing is your friend. It's meant to protect and guard, give you discernment. You can say, you know, that's not true about God. Not because you're arrogant and you're a know-it-all, but there's actually something that exists outside of you that you can go back to and measure what's said. And by the way, when it comes to arrogance, think about how arrogant it is if there is the truth, objectivity, and then we pretend like there isn't. In these last days, to quote Hebrews 1, God has spoken. And he's spoken to us through his son, the son who says he's the truth. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, I don't really know if we can know truth. It sounds very humble. It's the, the ultimate in arrogance. If God has spoken and truth is knowable. Okay, is the point belabored enough yet? Okay, one more. Thanks for begging. First Timothy chapter 4. We'll look at one more passage regarding this. If it wasn't such a big and important issue, I, I wouldn't have us do this. But and as you're turning to First Timothy 4, again, this, this isn't some sort of horrible, now I'm constricted... Now this is bad, objectivity, truth, oh man. No. No emotions, no subjectivity. 
No, it, it allows our feelings and emotions and senses to be guided and directed so we're not just idolaters and we can say, this is awesome that God makes these promises. That Jesus did come in the flesh and that He was raised again from the dead bodily. Oh, it's true that anybody who denies that's not a Christian. Well, that's pretty harsh. Yeah, that's true. But, but we're, we're losing sight of the fact that He was raised from the dead. And if you trust in Him, you'll be raised from the dead too. I feel great about that. Because I don't feel great about my body. But I feel great about the objective, genuine promise, historic reality of an empty tomb before eyewitnesses. Oh, and then eyewitnesses at His ascension too. I feel awesome. I'm so emotional about it. This is great. It doesn't get any better. It can even help me when my emotions aren't so good or my feelings aren't so good because it's a broken, messed up world. I can still be brought back to this place where we talk about ultimate reality and I can bring my feelings and emotions into check and have them redirected in light of the truth and say, this is, I feel so good. I'm going to feel terrible when I leave here. But I feel so good because I've in in, 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 been brought back by my friends and brothers and sisters in Christ and by the Spirit of God back to what's real. Let's look at another text, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in, the latter, that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Again, objective body of Christian reality about Jesus as the high point. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Who forbid... Oh, okay, how do they do that? What are they, they going to teach? What are these theologians going to teach? Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, here's, here's the truth you should know, everything, is created by, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it was made holy by the word of God in prayer. How about that? That's just like basic theology. If you know basic theology from the Bible, that when God created, He said it's very good, and everything is very good, it can be used badly. And the Apostle Paul saying, Hey, hey, Pastor Timothy, you got to make sure you teach your people theology so that they know and understand, and they stop listening to those false teachers who are telling them, you know, how to get to God. The way to get to God is to commit a vow of 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 celibacy and chastity and you never get married and then you're for sure close to God. The godly people will be like that and you have to do that to be godly. And not only that, if you go without food or go without food at certain times, that's the key to bridging the gap between you and God. And he says, these people don't know the truth. They don't know the truth. You got to make sure you teach the people that you're shepherding the truth and so they can be set free. See, how is it that we can, you know, otherwise it's going to be the, the next person who has a, some kind of good argument. Sometimes we'll go for the, 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 the best looking, the most charismatic, the ones that seem to have the coolest, like, buildings, holy hardware, whatever you like to call it, that's what I call it. And you're just drawn in. 
They don't know the truth. They don't know the truth about Jesus. But see, how could you ever say that? If truth wasn't objective. It would just be your word against my word. Their word against your word. How we feel about it or we don't feel about it. Sometimes I feel good about it. Sometimes I feel rotten about it. Super helpful when he says what he says. Depart from the faith. Okay. Let's move on. Let's go to number nine. Number nine. Theology matters because it unites and divides appropriately. It unites and divides appropriately. We'll do this one rather quickly. John chapter 17 is helpful. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 11 are helpful. Philippians 1, Philippians 3. You've all heard it said before, 99% of you, doctrine divides. It's saying theology divides. And you know what? It does. It absolutely does. That's biblical to say that. It's also biblical to say it unites. Okay? Unites. Now, sometimes we're just mean-spirited about it. Sometimes we're just divisive because we can all be acting sinful. It's bad. It's a problem. But it's not always that way. In John chapter 17, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, praying for believers in verse 11, And I am no longer in the world... But they are in the world, and I am coming to, you, uh, coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So he's, he's praying for unity. There's some debate about whether or not that's a unity that is, is a given. It's not practical. It's positional. Um, good merit for both sides of the argument. One is true and one is not true. I'm not sure which one it is. Um, we are one in Christ no matter what. But if he's talking about a practical sense, that's how I'm going to refer to it here, um, that they would be unified. They would be together, even practically. And it is interesting when he says in verse 17, sanctify them, which would be part of, part of being sanctified would be unified. Sanctify them with the, the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is what's going to unite them. The truth is what's going to unite them. Well, that's what objective truth does. This is super trivial, but we can all agree that 2 plus 2 is 4. We're united in that. Well, if there is objective truth about Jesus, recorded for us to read and see and evaluate and discuss, it can unite us and we can be together in a practical sense. So that's right. We, we, we believe that together unites us. The theology unites us. It also divides us. In Philippians, Paul in chapter 3, in chapter 1, we need to be, to be together standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. Chapter 1. So the gospel, the truth about Jesus and His work and His, his incarnation, His perfect life, His perfect substitutionary death, His resurrection from the dead, His ascension. We need to stand firm and strive together to promote that. It's what unifies us in our mission. United. And then in chapter 3, He says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Because there are those who want to say it's Jesus and... And so, unified in the gospel, 
divided from those who pervert the gospel. Theology unites and theology divides. Absolutely true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10, he talks about divisions that are inappropriate, and so he teaches them about the gospel. So they wouldn't have these inappropriate divisions. That's in chapter 1 verse 10 and following. And then in chapter 11, he talks about divisions again. So we shouldn't have these divisions in chapter 1, because if we knew the gospel, we wouldn't be divided on all these personality cults. But then in chapter 11, he says there are divisions, and the divisions are necessary. Chapter 11, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, some people would want to say, that's why I need to get rid of theology. But the whole time he's been teaching about the theology of the gospel throughout the whole thing. If they got the gospel right, they wouldn't have such a messed up, jacked up church. Teaching about the gospel, all the different ramifications and implications of the gospel. But then he says, I believe it in part, that is that there are divisions. How about this, verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. God actually uses the division. Who's for the gospel? Who's not for the gospel? Theology, understanding of God and His ways, unites us, and, and it should. And at least in a fallen, broken, sinful world, it should divide us. It should divide us as well. We won't go there, but the next one, number 10, theology matters because ideas have consequences and heaven and hell are real. Ideas have consequences and heaven and hell are real. And we'll talk about legalism and we'll talk about what the gospel is and what it isn't and how we have to have theology to know that. And number 11, now we're entering into the bonus round. Theology matters because, in a certain sense, theology is an end in and of itself. In a certain sense. It's an end in and of itself. Can't wait to talk about that one, because we're going to talk about what it means to be still and know that I am God and resting. And then finally, we will talk about how good theology isn't enough. <laughs> We'll talk about how good theology isn't enough. we got to have it. But just because you can cross your T's and dot your I's and you know the truth about God, it doesn't mean that all is well. And we'll talk about that too, and I think that'll be healthy for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the truth about you, that you are a knowable God. You've made yourself known. We look at creation, and we know something about you as Psalm 19 says. And then we look at your word and we can understand you appropriately. And we can even understand how you've revealed yourself in creation appropriately. And then we're thankful that then in the ultimate revelation of yourself, you've actually come here in the person of Jesus. And we're thankful for what he has done. We're thankful that there is hope for us in him. Please use our time together this morning, uh, whether it's been in our singing together, praying together, studying your word together, giving together, 
please use our time this morning to further equip believers to walk out those doors and to speak appropriately, graciously, compassionately, truthfully about Jesus. Also help us as we walk out those doors um, to not forget that He's our hope, ultimately. And our good theology is not our hope. We're thankful for Christ, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.